I've decided this um, New Year's morning to preach a message that has to do with the holiday that we're celebrating, and I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, the sixth, where we'll begin reading at the 19th verse. Just three verses today, but um, plenty for us to consider. Matthew, the sixth chapter, and the 19th verse, as we consider this morning moments for eternity. Hear now God's word. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth consume and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where thy treasure is, there will thy heart be also. And thus far the reading of God's Word. This is an awkward situation to be in because last Lord's Day, uh, you as a congregation overwhelmed me with your kindness and such a wonderful Christmas present to me, and, uh, and now I am coming back to preach a message to you to step on your toes. Doesn't seem the right thing to do, does it? But on the other hand, I, I think the reason why you have gifted me with uh, such nice tools for research and study is because you expect in this congregation to be told the truth. And you want your pastor to be well studied and you want him to be honest and open with you. And uh, for some time I have been contemplating this particular message uh, for this congregation and I trust the Lord will give you grace to receive it and to know that I preached it to myself many times over before I bothered to come and to share it with you today. Um, but I would like you to give some thought to the new year. Uh, this Lord's Day is the first day of 1995. The new year is upon us. This is a time when businesses, many of them, are closing out their books, considering their profit and loss uh, for the year and how they might improve their efforts. It's a time when the media uh, is looking back at major events, major trends in 1994 and telling us what we can expect in 1995. People are changing their calendars, they're changing their checkbooks, they're making assessments in many ways of their lives. And I think it's very appropriate as the world is making that kind of assessment that we as believers reflect on the passage of time and the direction of our lives and the evidence or the lack thereof of spiritual progress within us. What is life all about and where are we going? What does your particular life mean? Another year has gone by for you. And I want you to ask yourself very seriously today what you have done with that year. Because God granted you that year. God granted you life. God has providentially uh, made possible the sustaining of your lives, and in most of your cases, sustaining your lives with a great deal of bounty to enjoy, with great uh, uh, pleasures, a great deal of leisure, uh, convenience. Uh, we eat very well. We have warm homes. For the most part, our health is strong, and even those of us who struggle have been brought through this year by God's grace. The Lord has made possible your life and above all, he has granted to you life forevermore. And so as he has brought us to the beginning of a new year, I think the Lord would have us to stop and ask, 
Where are we going in our lives? How are we using our time? If secular businesses are concerned about their profits and loss, how much more should God's people be concerned about their own spiritual state and how they are using their time? The text for this morning tells us we should not be laying up treasure on earth, but rather treasure in heaven. And it adds the very biting indictment. I think, well, it's biting for me when I do this assessment. And that's why I said I had to preach this for myself before I dare preach it to you. It adds this biting indictment because where your um, treasure is, your heart will be found as well. And so what do you treasure? What really has made the biggest difference to you during this last year? It doesn't have to be simply 1994, you consider. You can look back over the last few years or maybe the entire course of your life. But where is your treasure? What is it that you value the most? And as we take stock today, and we do this year-end analysis and projection you know, for 1995, spiritually speaking, I'd like to give you a number of biblical passages that, that provide the context, the conceptual context, for the exhortation of Jesus to not lay up for yourself treasures on this earth. I'm not going to be telling you anything new today. I don't think, as I look at the congregation today, that anybody's going to be particularly surprised by what I have to tell you. But I do hope that the way in which I tell it to you will be very much similar to the reminder that Nathan brought to David many years ago. You remember how David had committed adultery and had um, uh, somebody that was married to the woman he desired uh, virtually executed in order that he might fulfill his own lust. Now, the question might come to mind, had David simply forgotten the commandments? In our congregation, we recite the law of God every Lord's Day. David didn't have to do that, and really, you don't have to do that, to remember that God says you're not supposed to kill and you're not supposed to commit adultery. And so David was not brought by Nathan the prophet anything new. He was not given information that, that somehow it had never dawned on him or he had somehow forgotten. But Nathan brought a reminder to David that had a very pointed, convicting power to it. And he told David the story a man who lost the one precious thing in his life that he had. And David was so enraged by that story that he said, bring that man to me, he's going to be executed. That's intolerable. And it was only then that David, you see, had his eyes open to understand his own sin when Nathan pointed at him and he said, David, you're the man. And I hope that uh, my reminders today will have that same effect as I tell you that this sermon is for you. I've already told you it's for me, so don't think that this is an exercise in self-righteousness. But today I want you to ask whether you have taken into account and whether you live by these truths which you know so very well. The first of which is that God's Word teaches us to expand our horizon and take into account eternity. When we do an assessment of our lives and where we are going and what's happening in our lives, the Bible says that our horizon should be more than this earth, should be beyond time and space, that we should be considering 
eternity and a life with God that will never end. Of course, that eternity will not be a life with God that is unending for everyone. Matthew, the 18th chapter in verse 8, reminds us that it's better for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or feet to be cast into everlasting fire. There are those who will spend eternity in absolute torment, separated from the blessings and the presence of God, having no communion with Him, having no love with one another, having nothing to enjoy and only misery to look forward to, not just to the end of the year or to the end of the century, but in an ongoing, unending, everlasting way. And the Bible tells you it's much better that you enter into life even if you had entered into life maimed than to enter into everlasting fire and the judgment of God. But now why would we enter into life maimed? Because Jesus said that we should be willing to pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands if need be to avoid every occasion for temptation. That's a very high level of demand. The Lord requires a great deal of his people. I have uh, been reflecting lately on the zero tolerance policy that the police are supposed to be applying to drunk driving at all times. Apparently, uh, our society's gotten tired of people that uh, apparently, uh, especially under 21, who are drinking and driving. And so the zero tolerance policy now is that if you are found with any alcohol content in your blood and you're under 21, your license is revoked for at least a year. Period. No questions asked about it. You don't even have to debate it. It's not negotiable. Well, if you think that's a high standard, imagine God's zero tolerance level when it comes to adultery, when it comes to lust, when it comes to greed, when it comes to selfishness, when it comes to an uncontrolled mouth, Jesus says, cut off the body part that's offending. Because it'd be far better for you to enter into life maimed than to not enter into life at all and no everlasting damnation. The Bible says you should consider eternity when you make your decisions. Every one of us decides throughout the day, every day of our lives, what we're going to do, what we're going to think about. And every decision is not only a positive one to do something, it's simultaneously a negative decision not to do other things. Life is full of choices. All right, You go to Taco Bell, you can get a burrito, you can get a taco, and unless you're a glutton, you probably aren't going to get both. Or if I have to expand the illustration, to account for basketball players who eat a great deal, you're probably not going to get everything on the menu. You're going to have to make some choices. And to choose to eat certain things means you're going to have to not have others. In life is like that. See, you can write that down as one of Dr. Bonson's favorite aphorisms. Life is like Taco Bell. <clears throat> you can't have it all. And so you choose. And to choose is to say no to some things and simultaneously yes to others. And Jesus says, think about what you choose and take eternity into account when you make your decisions. God's Word tells us 
that we have to expand our horizon. The world doesn't encourage you to do this. That you must, when you think about the choices you make, take into account there's more to things than just this life. Psalm 22:26 says, They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever and ever. Your heart's going to go on and on and on. And you should seek the Lord, praising Him, because you know that your heart will be extended to eternity. Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But there is a verse to be repeating throughout the day, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're going to dwell in God's house, what should you be doing now by way of preparation? My guess is when you're invited to your friend's house, if you were invited to Dr. Bonson's house, you would make some preparation. I don't think it has to be great. I mean, I'm not the President of the United States or some great dignitary or something, but you probably would put on some nice clothes. You might even take, you know, a shower or make, make you know, yourself look presentable. When you're going to someone else's house, you get ready for that person, right? Now, what if you were going to the White House? I guess it's for sure you would shower that day, wouldn't you? You'd comb your hair, and you'd probably put on your best suit of clothes. Even if you don't like the current president, you know that there's something appropriate about his office, and you would make yourself ready to go to his house. The Bible says you're going to dwell in God's house forever. What are you doing about that right now? What preparation are you making? I really love the children's catechism that uh, our denomination publishes. And if uh, you have children that you're trying to educate in the Bible and the teaching of uh, the way of salvation that's found therein, I really recommend that highly. That's not what the message is on today, though, so I won't continue that line of thought. Something in it that always struck me as uh, very helpful in dealing with children and educating them about the teaching of God's Word was the instruction that our hearts are not fit for heaven. I like, I like it being put that way. We're not appropriate for heaven. Our hearts are not right. We don't fit in to heaven. And that's why sanctification, as the children's catechism, catechism teaches us, is a matter of making our hearts fit for heaven so that our lives are changed so that when we come into God's presence, we aren't undressed or disheveled or unacceptable to him. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is your heart fit to do that? Have you made preparations to go to God's house and to be with him forever? Psalm 37, 18 says, The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. Matthew 25:46 These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Not just into life, but into life that will never end. John 6, verses 47 and 50 Verily, verily, I say unto you, he who believes on me has everlasting life. This is the bread which came down from heaven, which a man may eat thereof and not die. 
I realize there are many skeptics in our world today that scoff at what we as Christians believe, but Jesus teaches us that those whose bodies die nevertheless do not die. How can that be? Well, he says that there's a life which is spiritual, which will outlast the body, and will never be put to an end. The Bible also teaches, but we'll save this for another day, that our bodies will be raised one day, and they will live forever as well. But the point is, if we believe in Jesus, if we eat the bread that's come down from heaven, which we will do later as we take the Lord's Supper, we will never die. John 10, 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. John 17, 2, And thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice that how Jesus, before he goes to the cross, prays to his Father, and he glorifies God. And he says that God the Father has given power and authority to his Son that he should grant to people something in particular. And what is that? The best of all gifts, the greatest of all blessings that the Son of God gives to men? I want you to notice who he gives it to as well. Jesus says, <clears throat> And thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. The Bible teaches us that God the Father has from all eternity chosen a people to belong to himself. And he has granted those people to his Son. And Jesus prays particularly for those people, those whom you have given me, Father. And what I'm going to do for them, not for others. In fact, Jesus says, I do not pray for the world. I pray for those whom you have given me. Jesus will grant to them eternal life. It's a great uh, and tragic mistake of liberalism to teach that Christianity talks about gaining spiritual life now so we become better people and we have a sense of confidence before God and we learn to love one another and so forth and so on. But this has nothing to do with matters beyond the grave. Of course, Jesus was talking about matters beyond the grave. He said, what I'm going to grant to them doesn't simply pertain to this life, an improvement in their spiritual outlook, if you will, but I'm going to give them something which will spiritually last forever, eternal life. And I will give that specifically to those whom have been chosen by the Father. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, we are reminded in Paul's words that this mortal must put on immortality. Though our bodies will die, we will be immortal. And God will give even to our bodies after the resurrection immortality, undying life. In Colossians 1.5, Paul speaks of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And in Titus 3, 7, being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 2 Timothy 1.10, God's grace has now been manifested by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
well, there are many other verses I can share with you, but I trust that this string of verses will remind you in a very strong, clear fashion that when we take account of where we are going, what we are doing with our lives, what's the meaning of it all, that we will remember that there is an eternal life that lies ahead, that we must expand our horizons to eternity and then make our decisions in light of that. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that this world is not our ultimate destination and it is not our ultimate home. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verses 13, 14, and 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they who say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. But now they desire a better one, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Boy, that's a rousing passage. The author of Hebrews tells that so many saints of the Old Testament died and they did not receive what God had promised. Here they are, having faith in the promises of God, and yet they didn't receive the promise. But what? Having seen them afar off and were persuaded of it and, and embraced them, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. That is, they lived their lives having extended their horizon to eternity. And they said, God will fulfill the promise in the future. And if he's going to fulfill it in the future, they said, then we don't really belong to this earth, do we? We're strangers here. We're pilgrims here. And many of you are building mansions here because you've forgotten this isn't really your home. I'm speaking metaphorically. Not all of you live in mansions, I realize. But you see, the people of God who trust the promises of God, they know that there's a life beyond. And that's what they're living for. And even though it may be far off, they embrace the promises of God and faith. And the Bible says God's not ashamed to call them his people because he has prepared for them a country. Isn't that amazing? God has worked out things by his creative, sovereign power so that we have a place to go in the future. And we're looking like, you know, at a distance at that country that God has provided. Or we should be looking at a distance at that country. My fear is that many of us, maybe all of us, have to confess to this sin that really our vision is much shorter than that. We are spiritually nearsighted people. And we keep looking right at the life today. And what are my comforts right now? And what are my desires for this week? And God says that he's not ashamed to call his people those who look for a country that is far off, that he has prepared for them. 1 Peter 1.4, Peter says, Blessed be God who has begotten us to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. God has prepared an inheritance. It's reserved. It's set aside. It's waiting for us in heaven. 
Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not belong to this earth. How many times does that have to be said before it sinks in and it changes your priorities and changes your perspective? You're a pilgrim here. You're headed for a country God has prepared. He has an inheritance reserved for you there, and that's where your citizenship is. That's where your heart belongs. That's where your loyalty is. Jesus said in John, the 14th chapter in the upper room, in my Father's house there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Do you live your life like you're going to that place? A place that Jesus has prepared for you? In a faraway country that is reserved in heaven, that is undefiled, incorruptible, and will never fade away. This world is not our ultimate destination or home. Thirdly, the Bible teaches us that the present life is presented as brief and uncertain. The Bible presents the present life as brief and uncertain. The psalmist says in Psalm 39, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as as a handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before thee. When you with rebukes correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Well, we don't want to hear those words. The world doesn't want to consider those kind of words, but the Bible tells us that our life is extremely brief. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Every once in a while I am up in time to watch the morning news on the Today Show and one of the features they have there is honoring people that have birthdays that are 100, 101, that sort of thing. You ever stop to realize why they can do that? Because there aren't very many. My guess is that there's probably still a few more that they aren't covering, but the fact is, if everyone were to live that long, there's no way they could have that feature because they wouldn't have time to, me to mention all the birthdays, even those that are told them. People don't live to be 100 years old. They rarely live to be 90. And so take account of the measure of your days. The psalmist says, Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before thee. For you see, God has no beginning and God has no end. He is the eternal one. When you pray, I trust one of the things you praise God for is his eternality. He is unchanging. He is forever. And the psalmist says, And my age before you is as nothing. Take account of the measure of your days. How long will you live? How important is this life in light of the fact that you may not make it to even 100 or 90 years old? Psalm 90. They are as a sleep 
in the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, but in the evening it's cut down and withers. All our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they are fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Notice this. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. You're not familiar with this language of scoring, right? The score is twenty. Threescore and ten. Add this up real quick. You children who are listening to the message today, do your math now. Three times twenty plus ten. That's seventy. That's about right, by the way. Seventy. And then the psalmist says, the days of our years are three square years and ten, and if by reason of strength they are four score, if we make it to eighty, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Our lives are like a tale that is told. How long does it take to tell a story? Even a long one. Not long. It doesn't take all day. It doesn't take all week. It certainly doesn't take all month. And so think about your life as that story, just a passing anecdote. Or as the psalmist says, it's like the grass, which is flourishing in the morning, and by evening it's withered away. Psalm 103. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7, quoted by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. It's a frustrating thing to me. I'm not a very good gardener, so I finally hired a gardener to put in my plants. Some of you may wish that you had gardeners that put in your plants for you, right? And I want these plants to be beautiful all year round. And I don't want to have to replant them. See, I want plants to act like something more mechanical. See, that's what my personality is more like. It's like you set this thing up, you make it work, and it just goes on and on. And they don't cooperate, even with the gardener. The grass withers and the flower fades. And so your life will be. You can do all you can. I don't care if you do work out every day and cut that fat and all the sugar out of your diet and so forth. It makes no difference. Three score and ten, and if by reason of strength, four score, it is still labor and sorrow. The grass withers, the flower fades. Isaiah 64, 6, we all do fade as a leaf. James 4, verse 14, ask very directly and quite bluntly, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, but then vanishes away. You know what you should think about when you think about your life? Fog. This is the time of year here in Southern California where we get a few evenings and mornings of fog. The Bible says that's what your life is like, the fog. When it's there, it just seems like, wow, it's thick. 
like pea soup, as we may say. We can't even see through this. And you think, well, it's going to be there forever. What happens? The sun rises, and by 10.30 in the morning, it's gone. Usually, anyway. And that's what life is like, a vapor. It just vanishes. It's like the fog. And so the Bible would tell you this New Year's Day to expand your horizon, take into account eternity when you make your decisions. Remember that this world is not your ultimate destination. It is not your ultimate home. And thirdly, the Bible presents the present life as very brief, very uncertain. Fourthly, the Bible tells us we should weigh we should weigh the temporal present against the eternal future. We should be thinking in terms of relationships between what is present and what will be future. I'll give you three examples of the need to do that comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our present affliction is light by comparison to what we don't yet see, and that's eternity. That's what Paul's saying. He says, compare the present to the future. Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Things may be tough right now, but it's not even worth bringing into the equation when you compare it to the great glory that is yet future for us. Hebrews 10.34, For you both had compassion on them who were in bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. How could people rejoice that their property was taken away from them, that they were thrown into prison for Christ's sake? The author of Hebrews says, because you knew that you have a better possession. You have one that is abiding. And knowing that, you are enabled to make the right kinds of decisions to set your priorities correctly in this world as well. And so the Bible encourages you to not only look ahead to eternity, remember the brief and uncertain character of this life, but to compare what this life has to offer and what you are undergoing now to what will then be forever and ever with the Lord. And this is where the sermon now has to get a little painful. So are you doing that? What kind of decisions do you make? And how do you live your lives? What does eternal life amount to? I've talked about the fact that our lives are going to go on in an undying way forever. What does eternal life amount to? In John 17, 3, Jesus said, and this, is e and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life, to know God through his Son, Jesus Christ. If that's eternal life, and if we're supposed to be taking into account the eternality of our lives over against the, the, the brevity and the uncertainty of the present, then why is it we aren't spending more time knowing the Lord? 
There are people who spend a great deal of time getting to know their computers. Read the manuals, or some people don't read the manuals, but they still spend a lot of time getting to know their computers, don't they? Some of you may have gotten nice electronic devices for Christmas, whether it's a computer or a TV set or whatever. You spend a great deal of time getting to know about that. And plenty of you will spend time getting to know all the latest gossip about the entertainment world and keep up on your movie reviews. We're willing to know a lot of things in this world and to spend a great deal of time and sometimes energy and expense to find out about them. But life eternal is to know God through his son Christ. And to that we give paltry time. And the time we give, we usually give in a sense of duty, not enthusiasm. And the time we give is often begrudged, as though, oh, I have to be spiritual today. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If you're going to make your decisions in terms of eternity, what is valuable? What is valuable not only now but forever? 1 Timothy 4.8 answers saying, Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. The one thing that you can count on to be worthwhile now and in the future is godliness. And how much time do we give toward cultivating godliness in our lives? We just don't know what's important, do we? We haven't measured out our time, we haven't set our priorities, and we haven't pursued what is eternal life to know God. Nor have we gained what is profitable now and forever, and that is a godly life. Well, in light of what I have taught you, these biblical teachings about eternity, about the comparisons that need to be made, what strategy toward living, what philosophy of life makes sense? That's where Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21 comes in. I hope with this preparation you can now feel all the more the thrust of this text where Jesus tells us, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Because if you lay up for yourself treasures here, they'll be easily consumed and taken away. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which treasures will never be taken away. And he reminds us that our hearts, the very character of our inner lives, the very meaning of your life, is tied up with where your treasure is. What is the meaning of your life? Another way to ask that question is, where are your treasures? What do you give time to? What's important? What takes precedence over what? The Bible would teach us that the moments through which we live in this life are moments weighed against eternity. And a few moments can make a difference for eternity. I want to ask you, because you're my Christian friends, do you take account of that? 
Do you take account of your choices counting for eternity? Where's your heart? Where are your priorities? Ask yourself whether you study your Bible every day and pray. And if the answer is no, ask the tougher question, why? Why don't you? Where's your heart? Where's your treasure? And what kind of evaluation have you made of this life? Because you're spending your time doing something. And the greatest of Satan's subtle temptations is to keep us from doing what is best by giving us something good to do. You know why that's such a subtle temptation? Because you see, it's much easier for us to say, well, here's something over here that's positively wicked and ungodly, and something over here which is good. Boy, that choice should be easy. I hope for all of you, if you have changed hearts, that kind of choice is easy. But then, what if Satan gives you something which is not positively wicked to do, but it's not the best thing to do? After all, if you get up and you're going to work out today, so let's say you're going to walk a half hour more in your exercise routine, but that means you don't read your Bible and you don't pray. It doesn't look like doing something wicked over against something good, does it? And that's why Satan is so subtle and so successful in your lives, because he gives you good things to push out the study of God's Word. It's not wrong to enjoy watching TV or playing basketball or going to the movies. But it certainly is a huge mistake to prefer those things to knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and cultivating godliness in your life. And so how much time, how many moments do you give to prayer and Bible reading every day? You know, I fight this battle. We are in a country and we are living in a time of abysmal spiritual ignorance and weakness. It's only by the grace of God that the church survives in America. And I say that over against all the statistics and all the big churches and all the ballyhoo of their programs. We are abysmally weak as a people. We don't know what it means to sacrifice for Jesus in that sense. And I'm not a masochist, and I, I don't mean this fully, but in that sense I almost wish for persecution on the church in America. Because if we were persecuted, we'd get tough. And we'd get rid of the people who are here because they just want to free them living their lives like hell, but hoping to enjoy the pleasures of heaven. We are an extremely weak people. And the reason for that is because we are not in contact with God's Word. There are plenty of Bibles sold in this country. Not many of them are read. Not many of them are worn out. How about you? You wearing out your Bible? I don't want you to come to church and to display your Bible as worn out. This is not a message about, you see, one-upmanship spiritually. It's a message about the moments you give in preparation for eternity. Part of the reason why you don't read your Bible, I'm sure, is because you don't know what you're doing. That's not an insult. But many people don't realize that you ha there's a way to study your Bible. You have to know what you're looking at. 
The Bible's not laid out like a novel or like a history book or like an instruction manual, step one, step two, step three. And so you need to get some insight as to what you're reading. You need to know how to read it. But certainly when you read your Bible, how many verses can I get through this morning? But what is God telling me about himself? What's he telling me about me and how I should live my life? That's got to be on your mind. Why is this here? What's, what's it communicating to me? All scripture is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for instruction in righteousness and for correction. All of that is there. I need to read it for that. I'd much rather have you read three verses a day and read it with that in mind than a chapter a day just so you can get through the Bible in a certain length of time. But do you read the Bible? Now, when you don't, and for most of you, sadly, you don't. When you don't read your Bible, what I want to know is, do you take time for other things which are not as important as godliness or everlasting life? Because, as I said, life is like Taco Bell. It's all a matter of choices. If you have not chosen to take 15 minutes to read your Bible today, what did you give 15 minutes to? Think about it. And then ask yourself this question. Is the answer to question number two, that which I did give my time to, more important than knowing God? If you're going to live that way, I wonder if you would have the audacity to say it out loud. Say, God, you are not as important to me as sleeping in. You are not as important to me as going and having this kind of entertainment or talking on the telephone or whatever it may be. My friends, I'm not saying this to you because I want to slap your wrist. I'm saying this to you because the Bible requires me to tell you Look at eternity when you make your decisions. And if you don't have a desire to read God's Word, when you know how to do it so that it's profitable for you, when that simply is boring or not important or such a low priority, you had better ask whether eternity is going to be one of life or death for you. What do you give your time to? Why do we come to church at all? Well, you know what the right answer is. I don't, have, I don't have any doubt that every one of you can give me the right answer to why you come to church. Then why don't you live like that's the answer? What are you doing here? It's because we want to corporately gather in the very presence of God and say what? You are great. You are wonderful. And you have loved us when we didn't deserve it and you have saved us, and we want to say thank you. It's just that simple. And why do you come late? There's not a person in this room who would dare show up late to see the President of the United States. And yet we turn off the alarm and turn over for another 15 minutes of sleep rather than to show up to meet Jesus on time. It's only a few moments we're talking about here, right? But it's a matter of your choice. Whether you'd have those moments in bed, rushing to church to get here late, or have those moments to be with God's people 
and to praise God. New Year's is a time for assessment of how we use our time. And if I were to speak in broad, abstract generalities, I don't think any of you would be unhappy with me this morning, but I have to ask you pointed questions to wake you up. This is where it gets tough, right? When do I read my Bible? When do I pray? Do I sleep in or do I get to church? What do I do when I'm at church? How do you use your time when you're here? What, where's your attention? Do you participate? I've known people sometimes who say, well, you know, um, that isn't the best program in the world they have there. The music can be improved. Certainly the preaching can be improved. And on and on we can go. You know, no one has to deny any of that. My question is, where would you rather be? What would you rather be doing? Do you participate? Is your mind attending to what we're doing here? Or do you struggle with a wandering mind? You may ask, how does Dr. Bonson know to, to ask these questions that are hurting me so badly? Well, it's because Dr. Bonson's not different from you, okay? So if you remember that, I don't want you to feel any hostility coming from the pulpit, but a great deal, a very heavy concern on my heart that you don't come and participate in the worship fully. You don't come on time. You don't come with your hearts in the right place. What time do you give fellowship with God's people or the group study of God's Word? Now, don't get me wrong. I realize Thursday night may not be good for everybody. That's not the issue here. The issue is really what do you prefer to do? What are your priorities? And how are you spending your moments in preparation for eternity? What do you do with respect to the events, which aren't very many in our congregation, in comparison to your other commitments and your other priorities? Maybe I can put it this way. What sacrifices are you willing to make for the things you really want? What sacrifices are you willing to make for the things you really want? And now, are you willing to make those sacrifices for your life as a believer, a member of the church? I guess this is what disappoints the pastor more than anything else, is that I'm aware that the priorities are skewed for so many of us. Because we are able to sacrifice if I could sit down with each one of you, of course, then I'd really be disliked, wouldn't I? But if I could sit down with each one of you, I could say, you know, I know this about you. You work very hard to do the following. There are some of you who would not dare miss a day of work. You want to get ahead. You want to do a good job. And so, yeah, maybe you are feeling kind of punk in the morning. Maybe you are coming off the flu or whatever. But you pull yourself out of bed and you go to work. But you don't do that when it comes to church. When people want to know, what's a good excuse for not coming to church? Of course, if that's what you're looking for, I'd say don't bother to answer the question. Just go back to, you know, the start and begin again. But people say, well, is this a good reason not to come to church? This is only a rule of thumb, but I think it's a pretty good one, and it puts the pinch on us. Ask yourself, is this a reason you'd use not to go to work? Would your employer 
say, oh yeah, I understand. You were out late last night and you wanted to sleep in today. Sure, don't come to work today. You see, if your employer would not be pleased with that reasoning, why do you think God will be? What's wrong with us? Have we forgotten eternity? Have we forgotten what this life is all about? Have we forgotten that the moments we spend now are moments that determine our eternal life? And so what things will you sacrifice for? Will you sacrifice to give yourself more time to meditate on the Lord, to read His Word, to pray? When we come to worship God, we have an opportunity every Lord's Day to share our thanksgiving and our testimony and our exhortation with one another. Wouldn't it be fantastic if I had to teach those who are leading the service, you're going to have to tell people, we don't have enough time today to get into all of that. Because you come with your heart so overflowing with thanks and so willing to share with one another. You know, I kid many of you about getting back from our time of fellowship to Sunday school so I can answer your questions and discuss the sermon and so forth. And I'll continue to kid you and do those sorts of things. But you know, it really does reflect well on you that you want to talk with one another. See, if we have the right kinds of priorities, we should not have enough time in the morning for all the stuff we want to do at church, right? Yeah, we, we want to sing more songs, don't we? We want to hear more of the Bible. We want to ask more questions. We want to fellowship more. We want more prayer. Rather than coming in, well, let me see, he ought to be, actually, Dr. Bonson's a bit late today. We're going to probably not get home. When, where are our priorities? Do you hear what I'm saying from my heart? Brothers and sisters, today is New Year's, and Happy New Year to you. Make it a happy year for yourself. Expand your horizon to eternity. Remember how brief and uncertain this life is. Compare the things which are of lasting value to those things which are going to pass away. And don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. They're all going to be gone one day. They'll be taken away from you. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven because where your heart is, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be. My son David got a new computer around Christmas, and uh, one of the things that he can do with his computer is he has a program called Quicken. There are others. This is not an advertisement. One of the things he was showing me this week is how he can go in and do a summary of how much he has spent in any particular category, and it can be given to him in percentages of how much he spent all year and so forth. And at first I said, wow, that's really great. I have to get that, you know, not just to keep up with David, but well, wouldn't it be great to be able to manage my finances that way? And then I was driving away from his office, and I said, I don't know, maybe I don't want to know what the percentages are from what I'm spending my money for. I wonder how a summary of your time allocations relative to one another would come out for 1994. I know you can't exactly, precisely, with mathematical objectivity do that, but please ask yourself that today when you're having your personal devotions because you've decided as of this day you're going to make moments count for eternity. Stop and ask yourself, if I did have a quicken program that analyzed all my time, what percentages would I see there for worshiping God, fellowshipping with His people, studying His Word, 
getting to know him better, developing godliness in my life. The psalmist puts it so well. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, please help us on this New Year's Day to take stock of our lives, the direction of our lives, the quality of our lives, the priorities that we pursue. Lord, give us honesty, brutal, painful honesty about where our treasures are so that we might know what kind of heart we really have. Help us today to number our days that we might gain wisdom, to know what really counts, what's really important. And Lord, we come to you seeking your forgiveness because we know that even before we do the assessment, the bottom line is not going to be good. Lord, we thank you that you are so patient, that you are slow to anger, and you are ready to forgive. We thank you that you are overflowing in loving kindness. We need your loving kindness today, the assurance of your forgiveness, the continuation of your love for the sake of Jesus, and the strengthening of your spirit to live lives which are more pleasing to you. We ask that you would grant these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.